Exodus 17. I'm going to recap a little bit. Um, last week I just rushed at the end. It was quite a large uh, portion to try and cover last week. So what I'd like to do is just first of all is to read the whole of chapter 17. It's not very large. It's only 16 verses, but it includes a section that we did read last week as well. I'd like to refer to. So let's just do take the reading first. So it's Exodus 17. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and he named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is a Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill and with the staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about that when Moses held his hand up, that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. So Joshua overcame or overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it the Lord is my banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war against the Malik from generation to generation. So, just going back to the beginning of that chapter, where we had the situation that we referred to last week, where the people of Israel were complaining. And this was all part of God's testing. It was all part of God's plan of teaching uh, a redeemed people of how to trust in their God. And this situation, if you remember, we had it first of all, uh, the, the bitter waters of Mara, when God said to them, throw a tree or throw wood into the, the waters and the 
bitter waters became sweet. It was again instance of the power of God and if you think about it and focus on the fact that this is God testing and this is God's teaching and therefore it's important when we read it as a historical event is to try and get into the mind of God as to what was God telling them and why was he doing these things in such a way without just, as he could so easily have done, made the pathway very smooth and the people could have got all they wanted without asking for it. But that's not God's way and it's not the experiences that we have in life either. And in such a way, it's pretty obvious if we think about it, that if everything went smoothly in our lives, then we would probably be further away from God than we are now. It's unfortunate um, state of affairs in our lives because of our sinful nature that we come to God when we need him. And so he makes us need him. It's pretty basic stuff and logical. And so each one of us will have instances in our lives where we are struggling, when we have difficulties. And the purpose of it is to come to God. God wants us to need him, to rely on him. And this is what he's teaching uh, the people of Israel. And as we talked about it, the, the manna and the quail, uh, the provision of God and the laws associated with it, of how he wanted them to conduct themselves in such a way that was clearly aligned to listening to him, appreciating what he's doing and uh, obeying it. Why do we need to obey God? And it, sometimes we constantly question God because we think God's not as clever as he is. And we think sometimes that we know better. And why would God do that in my life? It would be a lot better if he'd done something else. And of course, this is what, exactly what the people of Israel were doing here. They kept questioning. They questioned Moses and Aaron, but of course they were questioning God. When they came again to another situation, and it, again it doesn't seem as if they've uh, appreciated um, the teaching that they've had already. When you think of all they've gone through and all they've seen from God, that they come to another point when they're thirsty. And what do they do? They complain. And again, we've just got to realise they are no different from us. And we can't be pointing the finger at these people because we are just as bad. <clears throat> and it's important, I think, that we look at these things and understand them. Now, what was God teaching at Horeb was sorry, at Rephidim, when he came and they camped at Rephidim and they, and they were complaining, then God, in his grace, we were thinking a lot about his grace this morning, um, sometimes we, we, we look at the way that God is treating the people of Israel and we think, why did he bother? They were such a disobedient, ignorant lot. And then we suddenly dawn think, actually, <laughs> they're no different from us. And God, the all-powerful, all-knowing God, is so gracious that he bothers with David King 
and his little quirks and his difficulties in understanding and he so graciously waits and eventually hopefully things begin to sink in and you understand a little bit more here we've got the same thing once again the children of Israel complain there's no water what are you going to do we're all going to die it's the end of the world what's the point of coming out here we'd much rather be back in slaves in Egypt same old thing so God decides this time that uh, Moses was to walk through the people with the staff of God and this is uh, with him and he walks through them with the leaders and uh, everybody's watching him so that he gets their attention and he takes them to the rock now I say the rock it might have appeared to the children of Israel to be a rock but we learn actually from other scriptures that there was a rock that followed the children of Israel through the wilderness and that rock was Christ you read that in 1 Corinthians 10 and you think well what does that mean how can a rock follow people how can a rock be Christ well of course we know from scripture that the Lord referred to himself as a rock God referred to him as a rock and this rock that followed it's again it's a teaching that we just have to get our heads round is that there's a Godhead of Father, Son and Holy Spirit and uh, you're seeing the, the Godhead at work here and in, encompassing in it and part of it is the Son the rock which is Jesus Christ was part of this exodus and is part of the service of the children of Israel it's part of their teaching this rock that is following them they have the pillar of cloud that they're following and they have Moses as the intercessor and they also have a rock that is following them and this rock comes to the fore because what God is saying to Moses you come and you come to this rock go up to that rock and take my staff and strike the rock and when they did that in front of everybody there came forth which, which I think we talked about last week enough water for three million people and their animals and that was not just a little spurt <laughs> Uh, of, of fountain of water that came out of the rock that must have been like a river that burst forth out of that rock so it wouldn't have been a little stone either it would have been a bedrock and there were a they were able to have their thirst quenched and of course this, the teaching in that is quite obvious that the rock is Christ the striking of the rock is it the necessity for God the Father to have struck the Son in order that out of that instance of punishing his Son there was going to come forward eternal life life-giving water for us and so it's very clear teaching going way back to the beginning of the Bible that we 
stand on, that we cling to, that's important and, if you call it, basic salvation stuff. And to be able to see that that rock is symbolic of Christ. It says that the rock was Christ. And so it's even deeper than just thinking of it as a symbol. It was obviously deeper than that, that Christ was there. Later on, you'll find that they came back to that rock uh, a bit later on. And the same thing had happened. And God said to Moses, this time, just speak to the rock. But Moses, in his anger, struck the rock twice. And God was angry. And he was angry because he will never strike his son twice. That's for future. I don't want to spend too much time on that. But it's just a picture of the rock. The rock is Christ. It's special. And God's response and reaction to the rock is clear evidence that that was Christ. Now that water that came out and the drinking of it sustains them and they go forward. Now, just going on from that, um, we come to the main subject, which is, the, is facing our enemies. One again uh, that God wants to teach his people in their learning to follow him is that you're going to have enemies. We are going to have enemies as the people of God. So once we have been saved and our sins are forgiven, we are Christians and we decide to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We go into the waters of baptism and we are added to a church of God and we are giving our lives and we're going to go forward in a purposeful way, uh, following the, the, the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, following the apostles' teaching, or the teaching of Christ, going into fellowship, and the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And in that, there's going to be somebody and some people who are going to be attacking us. And that's where... You're again getting the pictures of, and Amalek comes out of this as one, it's, it's satanic. Satan is the one who attacks us. All our difficulties and problems, all are his fault. Um, they're all down to him. And when we have difficulties and problems and doubts and we rail against our God because things are not going well for us, it's all Satan digging away. Now, the picture here you have, and again, we can read about it elsewhere in, in Deuteronomy. In fact, let's just look at Deuteronomy chapter 25 quickly together. <coughs> Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. And this is referring to just what we just read in Exodus Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt. How he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at the rear when you were faint and weary. And he did not 
fear God. Therefore it shall come about that when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. So this is telling us that this attack was a cowardly attack and it picked they, he picked off the stragglers. Amalek are descendants of Esau. If you remember the story of Jacob and Esau, there resulted in, because Jacob stole Esau's birthright, a hatred between the two. Esau hated Jacob. And you're getting the outcome of it here. It's almost been passed down through the generations. And this is Esau's offspring that we're getting here. And you're seeing a people who are deceitful. And they are a people that God hates. Why does he hate them? One is the obvious one, maybe, that he's picking off the stragglers. That's what Satan does. He looks for the weak Christians. He looks for the ones that are not studying the word of God. He looks for the ones who are not praying, who are not close to God, who are not relying on the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are the weak ones. These are the ones that are the stragglers, the ones that are at the tail. And Amalek picked them off because they're easy. They're not going to give much fight. They're the sick ones, the ill ones, the stragglers, the weak ones. And he picks them off. How cowardly is that? Amalek is a picture of Satan. And that these are things that God was having to teach the people of Israel. And although God hated it, he said, right, we're going to have a battle. And here's how it's going to be conducted. Now, again, God could just have snapped his fingers and Amalek were finished. But there is a purpose in everything that God does. And it's needful for us to try and understand them. That there we get Moses going up a, a mountain with the staff or the rod of God. This staff that he had that opened up the Red Sea. This staff that had come and become a serpent. This staff which God had used and now was calling his. It wasn't Moses' staff anymore, it was God's. Because God was using it. And he said, take that staff and go up that hill. And therefore, he says, if you lift that staff up, then Joshua, who's now, interestingly, chosen to be the leader of the army, he is the, the one that's been primed to take over from Moses in leadership. That would come in the future, but this is all part of the preparation. Joshua is chosen to be the leader of this battle. And he went to battle. And uh, the banner, the staff, is raised. And <coughs> Israel prevail. Israel are winning. But when his hands get tired and his, hand, and his banner comes down, they start to lose. The teaching, again, is obvious. <laughs> the teaching there is very clear. What does the banner speak of? The banner that 
eventually Moses built an altar and called it that this, this was a place that was unique because, it, because Joshua, Joshua had overcome. And then it says that, he's, uh, I can find it. Moses built the altar and named it the Lord Jehovah is my banner. I think, you know, when we're, if we're wanting to overcome the power of Satan, we need to have the banner lifted up. And it's just a very basic teaching there that if the banner is not lifted up in our lives, the banner being God himself, the banner being the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the banner being the power of the Holy Spirit within us, the Godhead, Jehovah, if he is not lifted up in our lives, we're going to start to fail. That's what happens. And unfortunately, in our lives, some of us need to experience that. And somebody standing up here and telling you that, it probably goes over your head or you don't think, don't take it on board. It's not until it actually happens in life that you think, oh yeah, <laughs> he's right, now I understand. This is what Israel had done. There was this toing and froing going on. And you think, well, why did God do that? He's teaching them. You need me. You need to trust me. You need to come to me and trust me in everything that you're doing. And then you will learn. And then the way will become smooth. But you need to go through this teaching. And so the banner is lifted up. Moses is holding it and he's getting weak. And the weakness speaks of us as well. Because there's times when we are weak. Not just the straddlers that Satan's picking off. But there's weakness sometimes, even where we try to be strong. And we get tired. And we think, is it all worth it? Is there any point in it all? And our hands come down. And the banner comes down. And the enemy start to make progress. That was a teaching of the, the first, if you like, battle that Israel as a nation had to endure, had to um, come up against. Sneaky, backbiting type of bar uh, warriors or uh, enemy that um, God hated. And God said, I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. Now again, this is the promises of God that we hang on to uh, because we trust God and our enemies are going to be destroyed. But in the meantime, unfortunately, we have to deal with them. And we need him. And the only way we can withstand the power of Satan is not through any of our own um, strengths. Our strength as individuals or even as a collective people of God is not strong enough. We need him and we need to trust in him that he will do it. Uh, only he can withstand the power of Satan. 
And so the altar that was built and the name that was given uh, is there. And it's there for a memorial. And this is where Moses is also told by God now to write. It's in, again, it's very interesting. And I think I referred to it in prayer this morning is the importance of remembrance. We were remembering the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. And the Lord God of heaven knew that when the Lord Jesus Christ said this do in remembrance of me and he put it in the minds of his disciples to gather together on the first day of the week and do it on a weekly basis was not just plucked out of the air it's because he understands us and he knows that if we didn't do that every week we would very quickly forget and of course this is what's being taught here we don't want the people of israel to forget the power of God and all that he accomplished in Egypt and all that he accomplished at the Red Sea and all that he's continuing to show them in the miraculous way in which he is taking them through the wilderness, taking them to the place where God would come down and meet with them and the whole covenant would be cemented. And as he's taking them there and teaching them, he's saying, I don't want you to forget. Write. Write this down. It's interesting that he says, uh, write it in a book. And it's a memorial. Now, the memorial means exactly what it says. Is it's something that has to be repeated. It's something that's not to be forgotten. We have responsibilities as parents, as grandparents, that we teach our children because if they don't learn then their children will not be taught and eventually it will be forgotten we are very fortunate that we have the scriptures it's a 500 year um, uh, anniversary of the reformation and of course we have to be ever so grateful to people like Martin Luther, who was strong enough, given by the power of God, of course, to stand up, having had the ability to read the scriptures himself, which many people didn't have 500 years ago. But that, uh, coupled with the ability at that time, with the um, invention of the printing press, that they were able to take what they, the Holy Spirit taught these men, Martin Luther particularly, that salvation came through faith, not by works. And to be able to go through these scriptures and to put that teaching down and get it printed. And so we got what was the beginning of Protestantism uh, and challenge against the, the false doctrine of the Catholic Church. And because of that, was a shift but that was all of course at the hand of God and we're recognizing and thankful for that but that was the hand of God teaching and but the point I'm making is that because of that printing because of the the ability over the last 500 years for us to be able to buy and to be able to read because of our education we have it so much easier 
than our forefathers three, five hundred years ago had when they were totally reliant on the priest to tell them what was in the Bible. And of course Satan used that to his advantage. But we are able to read this now. This is alive. This is full of the power of God. This is the living word. This is the word that became flesh. And that's available to us now. So it's a memorial. And here we're getting way back in Moses' time, the same feeling, don't forget, teach your children. Write it down so that in 100 years, 200 years, 2,000 years' time, people will be picking it up and reading it, and they will know what God did, and there will be no excuse. The same as we have no excuse. It's all there for us. There is no excuse for us not to read it. And just in case we think we're a bit thick and have difficulty in understanding it, then he's given us the Holy Spirit who reveals these things to us if we ask him. And so the banner was lifted up. Jehovah is my banner. It's put and it's written about. And of course that um, develops as the they come to Mount Sinai and they, they get the commandments of God, which are on a stone tablet and are written out and are written out and are written out and are continued to be written. And even up until very recently, I don't know whether they still do it, but the, the Jewish uh, scribes, if you read about in scripture, but the, the, the scribes continued to do that by hand because it was something that was so precious that they would do it longhand and it was done perfectly in beautiful script which is still available you know to people who want to see it and that was just a this is the beginning of that write it down so that others can read it and others can learn from it and be taught this um the building up of the, the, the altar was just, I think, symbolic, again, of the place. It's symbolic, again, that um, when a, an altar was built, it was because something special had happened. Just in closing, just wanted to say this about altars. You read about altars in the scriptures a lot. We have points in our lives where... We really need to build little altars. There are times when we have an experience with God. I've only sort of realised it fairly recently that I think as somebody who can't remember their salvation, um, it maybe should have been dawned on me a lot earlier that there was a there came a time later in my life when I had the assurance of salvation. So I don't know when the Holy Spirit came upon me and entered. Um, I can remember being very frightened, being told by a Sunday school teacher that my mum and dad were going to heaven, but I wasn't. <laughs> and when you're only five, you're scared stiff, so I mean, you get, and you think, well, was I saved then? Or was I just scared into it? Don't really know. At some stage, though, there comes a point when you do make that decision. Mm -hmm. and. There are times later in life when you doubt, 
and there are times when you get that reassurance again. Somebody says something to you. You have an experience. These are little altars that I think are important that I would recommend you try and remember them. However, it's best for you to do it because there comes times later when you wonder, did I really, did that really happen? <laughs> Was there some basic uh, explanation for it? But at the time, I was, you're so convinced that God's spoken to you or God's allowed you to experience something in order for him to reveal something to you. Hang on to these. These are important times, especially when you're weak, to be able to go back to that little altar. <laughs> uh, and I think this is what we've done here. Build the altar because it was a unique experience. This was a time when God showed his hand and the people of Israel saw it. And with the swaying back and forward of the, of the success and failure, where because of Moses lifting up and his weakness, the teaching there was so obvious that when it came down to sitting in little Sunday schools <laughs> or Sabbath schools, uh, that they would have had later, they would have recounted that. And then they would have said, we wrote it down, here it is there. We've got a little altar there. You can actually go and see it. It's still there. If you want to walk all the way back into the wilderness. And it was evidence that was passed on with the power of God. So these things are precious in our lives. Let's use them. Let's share them with each other. And as is going on next door, we teach our children. Uh, it's important that when they grow up, that they have the same um, experiences, uh, the same desire to know God and to learn from it and to know what God wants from them in their life as we wait for the coming again of the Lord Jesus. Shall we pray?